Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Any restaurateur or effective front of house person in hospitality has to develop keen observational skills. It's a job that requires anticipation, attentiveness, and constant interaction. That guest who just walked in that the host doesn't recognize, and you smoothly exit whatever you were doing, making your way to the front door to give the greeting that they come for. A glance across the room and a quick summation catching the almost empty drink on table 42, or recognizing the local school principal and his wife are approaching too long between their appetizer and main course. You also become an astute observer of people, how they interact, the way they treat others. When you've seen them year after year, over time, you get a pretty good sense of their character, what kind of person they are. Poise is defined as self-assurance, calm, grace, and dignity. As I was preparing for our guest today, that word kept coming up for me. Poise captures who she has been and who she is today. Poised, beautiful, self-assured, calm, graceful, and dignified. The daughter of Jackie and Clarence Avon, Nicole Avon, along with her brother Alex, grew up in Beverly Hills. Their father, Clarence, with his unyielding belief in himself, negotiated without a roadmap his way to the very top of the Hollywood Power Summit and came to be known as the Black Godfather, which also is the title of the critically acclaimed, award-winning, Reggie Hudlin-directed documentary Nicole produced about her dad. In the 20-plus years I've known Nicole, I've watched her grow from that poised, always gracious, kind young woman into a kind, always gracious power broker in her own right. When Barack Obama was running for the presidency, the campaign tapped Nicole to be co-chair of the Southern California Finance Committee. Nicole served as the U.S. ambassador to the Bahamas, appointed by then-President Obama, where she earned a nomination for the Sue M. Cobb Award for Exemplary Diplomatic Service. She has an array of business and philanthropic ventures under her belt as an active board member, including Best Buddies International, the Bogart Pediatric Research Center, Revlon, LACMA, and A Sense of Home. Nicole also served as an academic counselor at the Neighborhood Academic Initiative, a daily mentorship program for high school students sponsored by the University of Southern California. She was recognized at the 20th Annual Trumpet Awards for her dedication to public diplomacy and was also given the Humanitarian Award by BESLA, Black Entertainment and Sports Lawyers Association, in October of 2011. A former board member of Girls, Inc., she was honored with their Women of Achievement Award in 2014 and was awarded the Spirit of Compassion Award by UNICEF in 2018. Most recently, Nicole is part of a group of Hollywood A-listers, including George Clooney, Kerry Washington, Don Cheetah, and Eva Longoria, who are bringing a new specialized academy to L.A. focused on film and television production. She and the above mentioned, along with others, are backing the school as its founding members. Set to launch in fall 2022 as a magnet school and as part of an effort to drive transformational change across the entertainment industry for students from underserved communities. That's pretty cool. Nicole is married to Ted Sarandos, who happens to be the co-CEO of Netflix and is the proud stepmother of Tony and Sarah Sarandos. Nicole Avon, welcome, and thank you for being here. Oh, my goodness. I need to take you everywhere with me. My <laughs> God. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I wouldn't object. 
So, Nicole, thank you so much. Um, I kick things off with what I call short order questions. Just a couple of things to get uh, your quick response. It shouldn't tax you too much. We'll get into the heavier stuff later. Okay. <laughs> so tell me, what's in heavy rotation on your playlist these days? What are you listening to? Um, like right before I joined this podcast, I was playing Al Green's Greatest Hits. And I honestly, there's nothing like love and happiness. I mean, I play that song and I immediately go to church. In one second, I feel like I am in a church setting and it sets, like all music, it sets my day, it sets my mood, it sets my tone, you know, it's just, it's all old school R&B right now is on my playlist. That was my COVID go-to. <laughs> COVID relief playlist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we needed that, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. No, that opening guitar and love and happiness. There's nothing like it. No. But it's not, I mean... Come on. Every time. Yeah. Every time. Every time. All right. So tell me your morning routine. What's that look like? Morning routine, prayer. I say my prayers first thing before I even get out of bed. I say the Lord's Prayer every day so I could just try and set the day right. And then I start just speaking what I'm grateful about to really also, again, because I notice if I don't do those things, those two things, I'm a completely different person and not really the person that I want to be. You know, not my not not being excellent. So being excellent for me is is a lot to do with gratitude. Gratitude changes everything, uh, and it does set my mood right. And and not even about me. It's not about me. It's just for the energy that I put out into the world. Since that's the only thing I'm responsible for anyway is is my energy, and I just have to set it right. And if I don't do it in the morning, you know. Lord knows what happened. So but that grace and dignity that you're talking about earlier, I was like, well, <laughs> that comes with a lot of prayer and a lot of gratitude, but grateful for every everything. You know, if I look up and I, I can hear the birds singing or I, I you know, I'm, I'm getting a, a glass of water or I'm putting on shoes or I, I'm living in a house, you, these basic things that a lot of people around the world do not have. And I have to remind myself of the fact that I'm a free woman in the United States of America, regardless of whatever issues every country has. It's like I am free to be a sovereign being and I need to take my freedom seriously. And that's kind of it's kind of the way I start. Yeah, no, I love those affirmations. I, and just thankful for the breath. Right? The, bre- the breath. <laughs> the breath. You yeah. know, the breath of life that I'm grateful for my dogs and my husband and my family. And I can, yeah. you know, pick up the phone and call my parents, uh, you know, whatever it is. I- I'm grateful for life. Yeah. Yeah. I feel you. Yeah. Um, weekday breakfast. What's that look like? <laughs> uh, that usually just uh, mine's pretty boring. Mine is hot water with lemon and then I do oatmeal and a cup of coffee and I'm done. Okay, you're going light and healthy. Yeah, you know? yeah. or a good chai latte. I, I, I make okay. a good chai tea latte. I just try to perfect that. All right. Favorite restaurant these days? Oh, I just went to a great restaurant, uh, Gigi's. It's fantastic. Uh, it's not far from our house here in Hancock Park, and it is – I've only been there once, but it is – now that's on my top list for sure. Um, and then I, and then I go to my staples. I still go to Giorgio Baldi, uh, you know, all the, as many times as I can get there. And, uh, but Gigi's is great. Yeah. Giorgio Baldi has always been kind of like a little tuck away insider secret. You had to know it's not anymore. No, 
it, it's out. Rihanna's it's there. Out. It's like the, it, the secret's it's out. out. <laughs> it's honestly, I mean, I was there most of the time. It's funny when you're talking about the campaign, I was there all the time. Um, and uh, they always uplifted me. They were so excited about Obama. And all the Italian waiters just asked me about Obama every time I went in. And so it, oh, it's, a, it's a place of harmony for me. And it really is, I think, hands down, the best food in L.A., really. And Capo. Disagree. We can't forget Capo. Capo in uh-huh. Santa Monica, that's... On Main Street. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. on Ocean Avenue. Yeah. Uh, on Ocean that's Avenue, really yeah. Good, right? Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the campaign and how exhilarating that must have been, but we'll, we'll get into that yeah. in a little bit. Uh, best live musical performance you've ever seen. Oh God. Uh, you know what? I have to say it's probably to Al Green at the Hollywood bowl and I have to give it a tie. And then it was a long time ago. I was in high school and it was Bruce Springsteen and it was the board in the USA tour. And I had never seen, I don't think I had ever been to the Coliseum by myself. So I had never seen anything like that. But Al Green at the Hollywood Bowl is probably the most memorable for me and the most favorite, again, because I felt like I was in church. I felt like I was taken out of my body and transported somewhere else. And I loved wherever he Wherever I went in my mind and in my heart, I hadn't felt anything like that. Yeah, Al could do that. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we're going to obviously touch on uh, President Obama a few times here. But the the Springsteen, you, you mentioned Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. I listened to the uh, podcast that he and Bruce Springsteen did yeah. um, recently. That was yeah. that was incredible. What a great right, series. Right? Yeah. yeah. Bruce, yeah. I mean, Bruce knows how to he knows how to write about life. That's for sure. Man, he gets there. He gets deep. He really does. He gets deep. Yeah. And um, he's phenomenal. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of anything that he writes. His music is a little rock and roll for me, but I, I, I love what he what he has to say. Yes, exactly. What he has to say is really deep. And um, he he touches the humanness of all of us. He he touches the human. He gets to the heart of the matter. I think absolutely in the mo- and anyone can listen to him. It doesn't matter what race you are, what religion you are. He's speaking to you, yeah. you know, in his songs. Yeah. If you really listen to his lyrics, Bruce knows how to bring it. He, he brings it. He brings All it. right. So finish this sentence for me, Nicole. Oh gosh. <laughs> I have little patience for. I have little patience for rudeness. I'm, I'm with you. Nothing. No more needs to be said on that. Oh. Um, what are you reading these days? Or tell me where you get your news from. What, what are your publications that you go to? Oh, God. You know what? Last year, to be honest, I tried to get away from the news because I really don't want anyone's opinion on the news. I would just like the facts and then like to take that and go away. And no one really seems to be doing that. Uh, so I actually, you know, I'll try to get like a spectrum news I listen to just because to just give me the news. You know, I do like and then I like to go to certain people, like some things if I need an opinion, I like to bounce around and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll go to Brian Williams and then I'll bounce over to Fox and get, you know, Chris Wallace and just to kind of balance and see where I am. But otherwise, I'm really trying to disconnect from a lot of it right now because it's just... um, it's so inundated with everyone's opinion and negativity. And, and really I became, I found myself becoming much more anxious and disappointed and angry knowing that there was more good going on than a lot of this stuff 
that, you know, that's just on the news all day. It's a story over and over and over again. So long short of it is I, you know, I don't, I don't really, I kind of get the news from my husband. There's a short, <laughs> I always ask Ted, what happened to that? Ted's version. <laughs> you can come up and tell me what happened in the world today. But, um, but I look at the BBC sometimes too. And, mm-hmm. you know, to try to get different, different opinions. But, um, you know, I try to look for the good, even on Instagram. I'm not really on Instagram, but when I scroll, I try to go to the good news movement, things like that. And just try to, to find the goodness of people. Um, and, uh, and kind of fill my heart with that. Yeah. It's been a bit of an obstacle course, right? Trying to navigate to the good (laughs) and and just avoid the overwhelming negativity, right? hundred percent. That's a really good way to put it. Just trying to navigate to the good. Yeah. Um, Um, where are you looking forward to traveling to? I am looking forward to traveling to, I want to go to well, three places in 2022. I want to go to Australia. I want to go to South Africa and I want to go to Rome all for different reasons, but they have been, you know, on my list for a while and I have never been to Australia. I, and my best friend lives in New Zealand. My best friend, Susanna lives in New Zealand. So I want to do that part of the world because I've never seen that part of the world. And, um, and Rome, just because I love Rome so much. And I just saw this great movie that, it's going to be coming out. Um, I'm not really trying to promote it. I'm just saying it. It's a great movie on Netflix called The Hand of God. And it's a real full-blown Italian movie, you know, in Italian. And it's gorgeous. And when you watch it, it's like, oh, yeah, I need to get back. I, I need to get back to Italy. And then Africa I've been to, but I have not been to South Africa. Mm-hmm. I've been to a few other countries, but... Um, my friend served as ambassador uh, when I was in the Bahamas. He was in South Africa, and and I want to. He just would send me photos and talk about the people and the culture and the history, and I need to get there. Yeah, well, remember that uh, a little bit that you said about you need to take me with you. You know, or, uh, <laughs> yes, yes, come on, <laughs> that. <laughs> um, all right, a um, couple more of these quality that you most admire in a friend. Honesty. Ding. All right. Last one, Nicole. Who past or present would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party? Just one or can I have a few? This this is your show. Oh, my gosh. I would love to have, mostly in the past, I would love to have Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, Ida B. Wells, and Abraham Lincoln, and... Well, we'll just leave it like that. I know, and then and then I would add in maybe, and then I invite President Obama, and then we'd all sit, and we'd really break it down. And I think Frederick would break it down. I'd like to know the subject of reparations would come up in that conversation <laughs> as they looked forward into the future, what what they might think about that. But that's a great group. Yeah. All right, so let's let's uh, jump in here before we go too much further. How you doing? How are I'm- you? I'm great. I'm great. You look fantastic. Thank you. How's how's life a little north of uh, Los Angeles? I know you. I know you're not there today, but you've been spending some time north of yeah, LA. How's life up there? It's fantastic. I think Santa Barbara is um, is really. I've always liked it since I was a child. I love all parts of California, but Santa Barbara was always kind of a favorite for me. I, I love the people. I love the community. I love the peace of it, the calmness of it. 
I love being in nature. I mean, it's been a real blessing for my soul and a blessing for my family in general, just to be able to escape and, and just to be there. You know, I eventually plan on being there full time, but you know, one day, but for now it's, it's heaven for us. And, mm-hmm. and it's a real grounding place for me when I just mm-hmm. sit, my phone's nowhere near me. And I just sit and listen and, and stare at the wonders of life and the wonders of God. And it's it's phenomenal. So the, the contrast, Nicole, between the what I would imagine the busy, demanding life that you have when you're in town, when you're right. in L.A. Yeah. And then getting up to north of Los Angeles to Santa Barbara and being outdoors. And did you do you feel something different? I mean, just physically, does it does it come over you in a different way? In two seconds, I I really do say this all the time. And a lot of people who live up there say the same thing. It's almost like you have a new brain first. All of a sudden, your brain waves just feel much more steady and calm. But your heart changes. Your your whole energy of your body changes. I think all nature, wherever you are, you don't have to, you know, people don't even have to move. I always tell people just wherever you are, if you could just go sit outside or if you can't, if there's no backyard, if you have a balcony, if you don't have a balcony, open a window and just turn everything off and just kind of listen to life, you know, and what's, and what's happening. And it, it, it definitely does change me for sure. And it's, you know, it's, it's being around more nature and being out of a big city. Yeah. Important to do to, to get outside for sure. So Mm -hmm. let's, let's start with the school. Uh, You and the other founding members um, are teaming up with the LA Unified School District. Here's what uh, George Clooney uh, was quoted as saying about, uh, about the mission quote, our aim is to better reflect the diversity of our country. That means starting early. It means creating high school programs that teach young people about cameras and editing and visual effects and sound and all the career opportunities that this industry has to offer. It means internships that lead to well-paying careers. It means understanding that we're all in this together, end quote. Can you talk a little bit about the the initiative and and why you got involved? Yeah, you know, it was... I had one call. It took five minutes. It was Brian Lord, George Clooney, and, and a few others on the call. And I just said yes in actually two seconds because it's all about access. As soon as they described what they were doing, I said, this is, this is exactly what I believe in. This is exactly what my father had you know, lived his life of just creating access. You know, what, you could only open the door, but at least open the door. You can't be responsible for what people do after that. But for me, creating access for people who have no idea that there's so many, um, so many careers in entertainment that they might want to be in. You know, there's some. I think a lot of people think of the movie business only as in front of the camera, but there's so many jobs: the grips and the lighting and the you know, um, the writers and directors and costume designers and makeup artists. I mean, you can go on and on and on. And there are a lot of kids who, or a lot of students who may not want to go to a four-year university. They might not want to go get a PhD, but they have a real talent with makeup. They have, or they know how to sew better than anyone else. They can make costumes. They have these visions. They they want to be on a set. They they want to do lots of things. So I, what we want to do is make sure that our community, our entertainment community, gives of ourselves by you know, opening the door and creating access, but then having 
all the people that I just mentioned, all of them come in to mentor, all of them coming into the school and really giving their time and, and teaching the students, you know, this is what I've been doing for the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and you could do it too. And, or it's also giving the students, by the time they leave this academy, their resume, they will be able to walk into a studio and have a skill. Because a lot of people, you just need to really, you want to have skills. Like I believe in trade schools as well. I think they're underrated. So many people have skills to do so many things. And I think the idea of there's one box and everybody needs to go to college, and everybody needs to go to this college, that's not always the case. And so, and if they want to do that, that's great. But, but again, for me, access, access, access. I love the idea of people being able to dream bigger than they ever thought they can dream and taking limitations off of people, you know, or, you know, people thinking, oh, well, I've never seen a woman do that. So I don't think I can do it. Or I've never seen an African-American do that. So I can't, oh no, that's not even, that's not even real. That's no, you could take that off. You have no idea. And there's so many, and I just believe in, again, I get this from my father and my, my, both my parents, it's everyone has, um, you know, a life to live and everyone has gifts. Everyone has talents. Everyone has a purpose or many purposes and everyone's here to serve. And really we all join this because we want to serve our community and we want to serve the people in our community. And it's, it is about giving back because I think the thing I love about George and the others is that they've never been, you know, giving back for any accolades or anything like that. They don't care. I mean, they do it out of the goodness of their heart. They're not, they don't care if they ever got a press release out of it or a cover of a magazine. It's about doing the right thing and giving back because we all remember that someone had to say yes to us. <laughs> Somebody opened the door for us. Doesn't matter how you grow up. People, I grew up in, in a nice, in a great life. People still said no. People still said yes. I had still had to be prepared. I had to have skills, you know. And um, and sometimes it's easier for some people to acquire skills than others. And I think it's very important to remind ourselves that there is always somebody willing and able and they just need a yes. So let me ask you, and that, and that just sounds fantastic. I love the idea of this even happening. The tie-in with the uh, LA Unified School District, does that give you the ability to find the students that yes. would have the interest? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. at the high school's there, the students are going to be there. We mm -hmm. need to show up and uh and and bring it <laughs> and, and and bring the people with the skills and bring yeah. and, and and just bring all of ourselves to this mission and we've all kind of reached back and i called my friend amy orsman she's a great makeup artist here in los angeles and she said i'm in i mean she read the press release and i didn't even get she told me first she said i'm in whatever you need you tell me where to be and tell me what time and i cannot wait to, to share my gift with others and, and teach. And we, we, the responses, Brad, are everybody, grips, cameramen, everybody, everyone's saying yes. So we're excited. 
Yeah, it's it's really really exciting. So Nicole, that's that's kind of entry level, and that it's beautiful. And with the year that we've had, I keep saying the year, but it's been longer than that. It's been a couple of years now with the pandemic and the racial yeah. unrest and all of the conversation and everything yeah. that we've experienced in the last, you know, we'll call it a couple of years. But as you know, where from where you sit in Hollywood. Um, as you're talking about these opportunities for, um, you know, at the beginning of the careers uh, for some of these young folks, I think about the top of the entertainment industry and decision makers at the studio level, partners at the talent agencies where we still don't see representation mm-hmm. in terms of diversity. What What's your feeling about that? Do you think that we're making some progress and we're heading in that direction where there will ultimately be a little bit more diversity at the top? I do. And I'm really not just saying that. I mean, especially growing up in this business, I saw nobody in these positions, especially in film and television. When I was growing up, there was zero. I mean, I didn't even know any. I knew maybe two black agents, maybe. Mm-hmm. And now I can go to every agency. And I have, I, have, I, I definitely I can definitely say from as a young girl growing up in this industry compared to when I was growing up now. Oh, it's a big difference. A hundred percent. You know, is it where we want it to be? Maybe not, but it's definitely going in that direction. And I think with people, you know, I just saw Ava DuVernay the other night at, at an event and I look at people like Ava, for example, and what she's been able to do, not just with her stories, but she gives so much access and finds people, you know, to, to work on her set, to do these. And she focuses, she's on purpose about finding people of color, finding women, giving people opportunities. And there's so, I'm just using Ava as one example, mm-hmm. but there's so many people like that. You know, our friend Charles King. I mean, look at Charles King, what he's doing with Macro. I mean, Charles is killing it. And I remember Charles, when he, we were just talking a couple months ago when he was at WME, he, I, I'm not sure if he started in the mailroom. He might have. But I mean, he worked his way up and worked his way up. And now he has this you know, production company that's done so well and he's got deals, you know, um, with Netflix and other, you know, companies. And it just is so great to see a lot of black talent that I knew 20 years ago, 25 years ago that are now really running things. And it makes me so happy because I'm telling you, there was nobody when I was younger. Right. And, you know, I think, Nicole, it's really important to hear somebody like you articulate that because it's easy to kind of get lost in the echo chamber of, oh, you know, things aren't. Ha- oh, you know, we don't have this yeah. and we don't have that. But, you know, you your your view is a long one. And as you yeah. just you know alluded to, you you remember a time when it didn't look like it currently looks. So there has been, you know, a lot of movement. hundred percent. I, I, I'm telling you, especially in the agencies with the agents, mm-hmm. I saw none. Really. I mean, there were really nobody when I was young, nobody. And now, you know, it's great when I walk into CAA or WME or ICM, any of them. And I see all these, you know, people of color, more women. I mean, there were no women either at the, even when I was growing up and in, in big executive decision making places. So it was just Charles Johnson. You know, he was like the whole <laughs> producer of color when I was growing up that I saw. And I right. and now it is different. And I think and the beauty is this group of people have a real conscious have made a conscious mm-hmm. decision, many of them, to definitely bring the next generation up with them, which is a good thing. Yeah. Because it's always very dangerous when everyone makes it about themselves. 
Yeah. So, Nicole, let's take a step back. Um, growing up during the time you did in Beverly Hills as one of, I would imagine, few black families, I know your dad told the story um, in the film of looking for houses in Baldwin Hills when first moving <laughs> to California from the East Coast, as that was where most prominent African-Americans lived at the time. But ultimately, Beverly Hills became home. You graduated from Beverly Hills High. Can you describe a little bit about the experience of growing up in Beverly Hills when you did from your perspective, easy to make friends, just socially? What what was that oh, yeah. like for you? I was lucky. I mean, I was really lucky. It was, um, you know, it was pretty uh, liberal at the time. I mean, it's, it's changed now, but it's um, people were, I had not one problem in Beverly Hills, not one. And I mean that, not one. Now, when I left, yes, but um you know, I went to the, I went through the Beverly Hills school system from five years old, all the way through Beverly High. Like you said, there were a few a, a good amount of black families for that time. I mean, this is you know the early seventies, and I remember. I mean, Dionne Warwick, her children, Smokey Robinson's children, all of us were the same ages, um, so we went to school together at Hawthorne Elementary. But I remember, you know, we had Dr. Williams and Dr. Query and Mr. Morris and, and um, you know, Mr. Gordy. And, and there was, there was a, a group of us that were, we made sure to spend a lot of time with each other. And the children made sure, our parents made sure that we were always interacting with each other because we needed each other, right? But the beauty was, is that like my dad says in the film, you know, Baldwin Hills, it was for mostly black professionals, black lawyers and doctors, what have you. And then there were a few, and Dr. McPherson, I remember, there were a few doctors in, black doctors in Beverly Hills. And it was great because I got to see an array of different people and different professions. And it wasn't just like the athlete or, you know, nothing wrong with that. But it was, no, we're, we're, we are just like every other race, by the way. You know, uh, you know, we do lots of things, too. Right. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine that. <laughs> uh, just like that's everybody great. else. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> We're at a memorial service celebrating someone's life through the day. And Herb Alpert's daughter, Eden, is a good friend. And you know what the beauty is? When you go back in the – when you see your friends from the industry, especially, or the just people that you grew up with, and then you're you have – no one else could really talk to you about your childhood because no one gets the whole experience that we had, you know, and it was, it's so nice to reconnect. And we were, all we talk about Brad is how fortunate we were to grow up in the entertainment industry at that time where people were doing things together. So it was film people and music people and everybody kind of coming together in lots of cultures and lots of backgrounds and, we all were friends and, and there's more of a separateness now, which, mm. you know, it's not really the same, but I, I really had a, uh, I had a great time and I had great friends and, mm. and a great experience. So Nicole, you, you chose to um, stay local. Uh, you graduated from Cal State Northridge with a mm -hmm. degree in communications. Um, did you ever consider going out of state? I did, actually. I thought about, I did a little stint at NYU. I wanted to go there. I thought, um, and I took a summer, I did one summer with the intention of transferring to NYU. So I think it was the summer of 88. And I took two or three courses. 
And then I realized there was something about Cal State Northridge that it wasn't my friends so much that I wanted to run back to, but I had really great professors. I knew I was really learning something. They weren't just saying, oh, you know, that that's really, they weren't so um, carefree. They were pretty strict and it was constructive criticism and I needed that. And I wanted to be the best writer I could be. And I wanted to be great as a broadcaster if I wanted to do that. And, and they would check me all the time. And so I just... I thought it was New York. I, that summer, I just knew. I said, oh, I'm going to get through this, and then I'm going to move all my stuff next month. And it didn't happen. I came back. And I think I'm just a California girl through and through, even though I, I did live in New York after that. I did live in New York for a couple of years, and I, and I do love New York. But California is, is my state. For yeah, sure. yeah, no, I get that. So I want to talk about um, the movie a little bit. You were you were kind enough to invite me to the premiere of The Black Godfather a few years ago. Um, I believe it was at the uh, Paramount lot. And, you know, what an event it was. I took my son Bryce in the yeah. film, the guest, the setting. I mean, it was just an, an incredible night, very memorable. I rewatched the movie over the weekend in preparation for today. And it's it really is such a great film. There's so much history. It also offers such... Uh, some insight into what you learned as the daughter of two parents who were so at the center of culture and power. In most cases, our parents, especially those of color, you know, and, and your dad, you know, of course, came from, you know, a kind of a, we'll call it a humble background. Yeah. Um, yet here are two people who not only found a place but seemed destined for their respective roles. Your dad, the power broker, deal maker, and your mom, the elegant former ebony fashion fair model. That was news to me. I didn't know that. Cultural observer and prominent narrator in the film, Nelson George said, quote, ebony fashion fair models were the first models that black people saw on the runway. For a black guy in 1960 something, an ebony fashion fair model was a big deal. Your mom is the epitome of elegance, as I mentioned, poise, and very much in her mold is how I think about you. Did you develop social skills naturally, Nicole, through observation, or was this something Clarence and Jackie imparted on you as part of the Avant home training curriculum? And can you talk a little bit about your mom, Jackie? Yes. Um, My mom really is the one, you know, education is extremely important to her. The arts are very important to her. She is, yeah, she's very graceful, very smart. But her whole intention with me was, A, to learn my history. I mean, my mom was really strict with that. I mean, I, you, I'm sure you remember. Do you remember going to the mailbox and getting Ebony Jr. out of the mailbox on a Saturday? And I, had, I would have to sit and I'd get quizzed over and over and over again. I'm like, Mom. But thank God she did because... I can see now that a lot of people now in their, you know, midlife are just starting to find these little nuggets of black history. And it makes me so sad because I'm thinking, well, didn't you know that as a child? Like, no, I never even saw this before, but it was there. It's just, you had to find the right outlets. But my mom, I mean, she was, James Baldwin and Richard Wright were household names to me by the time I was eight. So my mom was very much into, you must know, you know, black scientists, black professors, black universities. Like my dad says in the film, everything was black this, black that, black this. But my mom was more of, you must see the victory in your people. You must study the victorious 
So you know where you come from, but you know that there's victory. You cannot just listen to a story of, you know, this, this atrocity happened, which of course you don't want to erase that, but you must honor your ancestors and you must honor the people that came before you and know all of their stories. And so I'm grateful that she gave me that. And she gave me the love of film. I mean, Dorothy Dandridge, I remember watching Cabin in the Sky and just my mom was big on, you know, me understanding all of my culture as much as possible. And, and so it gave me a different perspective. I, and, and they did everything on purpose. I mean, my girlfriends growing up in Beverly Hills, my white friends would come to my house and if they came for parties, they only saw, you know, yes, all the people, most of the people, the guests were mixed, but my mom, for example, if a catering company was at the house, my mom made sure she found the black catering company. Mm-hmm. If there was a valet service that they needed, she made sure they would to go get a, you know, they would at least go and try to find a black company first because it was always about sowing the seed back into the community. And so my mom really, I mean, my love for books, my love for art, my love for history, you know, I remember she showed me the documentary Eyes on the Prize and I, I had never seen anything like that, that, that inspired me so much, that made me so sad, but also made me so proud. Mm-hmm. And so I took a lot of those themes and wanted to shove it all into the Black Godfather. But it really, if my mom didn't raise me that way, and, you know, she read to me every night for God knows how long, you know, probably up until I was, you know, 10, 11. She just read to me every night. There was a different book. There was a different thing. And so, but learning was fun. And it was fun to learn about my history. It made me stronger to learn about the struggles and then, and then see the victory, even if it wasn't in their lifetime. You know, my mom put this way. My parents made sure that my life had to be on purpose that 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 my life that i'm standing on lots of shoulders and the only way to really say thank you to everybody for the last 400 years is to do something with my life that's how you say thank you that that's what i took from them they didn't really articulate that to me but mm-hmm. that's what i took from their intensity of of growing up with them you know what strikes me too, Nicole, about what you, what you're describing. You know, there's there's often a narrative about black folks who, you know, let's just say want to move to a place like Beverly Hills to get away from, you know, mm-hmm. the the culture and and right. being identified as, you know, what however they, you know, might perceive that identification. But here's your mom and dad who moved to Beverly Hills, but even more strongly identified and in, and and implanted, imparted in you the, the importance of recognizing the culture. Yeah. Um, I just think that that's just so insightful yeah. and, and just intuitive on their part. Yeah, they were, I mean, they really, and everybody, everybody had a place. I mean, they wanted to show me that, like I said earlier, it, it's every race is like, I remember my mom used to get me dolls from around the world and she used to have like a little cabinet next to my bed. But so when I woke up, Brad, I would see people, I hadn't been to Mexico when I was five, but I would see, I'd have dolls from Holland and Mexico and Africa and Asia and this and that. So that when I woke up, it just, I could see the world in front of me and not So when I grew older, it wasn't a big deal that somebody was a different race. It wasn't a big deal that somebody was from a different country. They were just a human being. It was another human being in front of me as opposed to, oh, they're this race and they must be like this. Nicole, so 
The film features everyone from Presidents Obama and Clinton to then Senator, now our Vice President, Kamala Harris, Quincy Jones is in it, David Geffen, plus many, many more, including some people, uh, unfortunately, that we've lost since, Bill Withers, Cicely Tyson, Andre Harrell, I can't even believe that as, as I'm saying it, Hank Aaron. Let's talk about the making of The Black Godfather. Can you discuss how the idea evolved and whose idea it was, what the process was like bringing all the pieces together and getting all of these notable people to participate? The making of the film for me was etched in my head probably since I was about eight, and it really started with Hank Aaron and Andrew Young. Hank and Andy Young... Every time they came to California to visit, they told me their story of how they met my father as if it was the first time telling me. <laughs> to the point where I'm thinking, I got it. Like, why, do you, why are you guys doing this? <laughs> but then I realized, oh, they never want me to forget mm-hmm. any of this. They don't want me to forget their struggle. They don't want me to forget my history. They don't want me to forget who I came from. They don't want me to forget that we really ju- just got here. And you've got to do something, Nicole. You've got to remember so that you could so you could do your best. So you could, you know, the baton has been passed to you, basically. That's what I always got from them. And I remember specifically, I was at Dodger Stadium. Hank Aaron had worked it out where to get, you know, to say thank you to my father for doing stuff for him. We had great dugout seats. And it was near the visiting team. We had second row. And I would bring all my friends from Hawthorne Elementary. And you used to have like a little sticker on your on your hand to prove that you were going down the dugout. For whatever reason, I didn't have it that day. My girlfriends went down and the guy stopped me. And I said, oh, you know, and the, my, my girlfriends are saying, oh, no, and they're white. They're like, no, she, we're with her. And the security guard was like, yeah, right. And he held me back. And I said, no, 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 really, I'm, I'm really down there. I mean, we were t- you know, young. And he said something to his colleague and he basically said, I'm paraphrasing, but like, oh yeah, like she could have dugout seats. Like somebody, like this black girl thinks that she's really going to go down there. And it shattered everything in my heart because I heard the tension in his voice, the meanness, the, the race. It was so cruel. And it was good though for my girlfriends to witness it because they could still talk about it today. And it was kind of their first time feeling anybody being racist or anything. And I remember driving home with my father and I never wanted to cry in front of my father and I was holding my tears in. And he said, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And I said, he didn't think I should be there. He didn't want me. He said I could not have dugout seats. There was no way I could be sitting there. And my father looked at me and goes, well, what are you going to do about it? And I, in that moment of him just asking me that, I said, I'm going to tell a story one day. I'm going to show how black people really live. And I'm going to show, I had this whole moment of no one knows who we are. Everyone thinks that we're one way and we can't have anything and we're not successful. We have no this and that. And it just, in my head, I I kept thinking, I'm going to make a movie one day. And I'm going to show everybody that comes to my parents' house, I'm going to put them all in a movie, and I'm going to show what they've done and how they live. So it really was that moment of adversity and cruelty, but it's great because that's usually how you define, you start to define yourself and what you want to do, and it kind of gives you an idea to your purpose. It's usually something 
not so fun, you know, where it makes you change. And I, and I just, and then I got it. And then Brad, a light bulb went off and I said, this is why Andy and Hank are always on me. And from that moment, they all would tell me stories. Harry Belafonte, Bill Withers. It didn't matter. They all had the same story, which was, you know, the one common ingredient, which they had my father, which was, he gave us our shot. He opened the door. He, you know, I always tell people, it was like my father knew he got some type of golden ticket, for lack of a better term. And somebody opened the door for him. Somebody taught him the business. He was one of the, the lone person in the business that could really have give people access. And he just made it his mission. He was bringing as many people to his promised land as possible. And when he did Save the Children, you know, when I look back at that footage and listen to my listen to Stan Lathan saying, Clarence was saying, black this, black that. So the camera grips and and everybody working behind the scenes as well. He said, there are black people who have these skills. Let's find them. And they made a great documentary. Yeah, absolutely. I want to just go back to, though, to something that, you know, Clarence saying to you in that car, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. You know, I'm thinking as you're saying that, oh, I'm going to go back. Oh, let me find that security. You know, yeah. but your father, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, because you know what? My dad, he has two cents. This is what he always says. He always says, it is what it is. I mean, that's his thing. And it used to drive me crazy growing up. My dad, it is what it is. If I, if I'm even as, even when I was ambassador, I was crying. I called him and I was very upset about something. He said, it is what it is. And then he'll pause and then he'll say, what are you going to do about it, kid? And I realized as an adult, it took me until I was 40 years old, what he means when he says it is what it is, he taught me that you have to first accept what is. Doesn't mean you like it. Doesn't mean you approve it. You just have to accept it. So you could say this is the reality right now in this moment. It is what it is. And then you could take a breather. And then you pivot. But my dad was trying to teach me this whole time, you can't pivot into something better if you first don't sit with what is, look at it, what do you want to change? If your mind is so crazy in anger and you're so frustrated and you're angry and you're furious, he goes, yeah, you'll make decisions, but you know what? They're not going to be great. You got to calm yourself first, accept what is, sit with it for a minute, and then you make a decision, what's your next move? It's like playing chess, you, but you can't play with an anxious mind. The anger, the, yes, anger does fuel you. It fuels all of us, of course. But I started to realize, I get it. So his big thing is it is what it is, and then take a beat, and then what are you going to do about it? You know, this may be a little too Joshua Tree for, for Clarence, but there, that's mindfulness, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what we're talking about. Yes. He is, you know, it's funny. He's such a prophet. And he's so, he doesn't understand, you know, it's so funny. It's almost like, he, like he always says, like, life is about numbers. And I used to say, oh my God, you know, dude, really? <laughs> but then you look at it and again, uh, now I look at it and he knows it's the ultimate numbers. You can't change four is four, no matter where you, four plus four is eight, no matter where you go in the world, you know, yeah. uh, 10 times 10 is a hundred. It doesn't like numbers do not lie. That, that's his thing. Like you, you can mess with words. You can mess with thoughts. You can't mess with the number. You got a number coming in and a number going out. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, Nicole, I don't want to ruin it for the two people that have not seen this movie yet. But the line 
I don't have problems. I have friends was a classic. And I just want to touch on because it's easy to look at you now in your life and say, oh, this girl has just had it made her entire life. But you guys had some tough times and Mm -hmm. there was a time you almost lost the house. Mm -hmm. Um, What was that like for you? What did you experience? I know you were a young girl, but it had to have made a mark. What, what, What did that leave you with? It was terrifying for me because, I mean, I'll tell you this, now at 53, I... You should see me now when we like when we buy things, you know, now when I buy property or anything, I'm like, we're paying off this house. If we can't buy it, we're paying it off in this amount of time because it triggers me from a very young age of the paranoia and the fear of, oh, my God, somebody's going to come take our house. I was young. And so when my mom said that, I didn't even I couldn't even comprehend. What do you mean the bank? is coming to take our house. Where where are we going? And we might go live with grandma. We might go to New York. We might, you know, I don't know. And it left me with, you know, you have to be prepared for life. You have to be prepared for what life throws at you. And, you know, his saying about, I don't have problems. I I have friends. It also taught me that, you know, my father, without his friends, without Quincy, without Jerry Moss, without Joe Smith, his friends bailed him out. His friends loaned him the money to turn his life around to, to pay. And my dad, I remember asking him recently, he said, no, oh, it took me years to pay everyone back. But he was so proud. He sat at lunch. He goes, but I paid every single person back. But without his friends, I mean, they were the ones when you're in quicksand and when you're drowning, you hope that you've been good enough to enough people where they would want to turn around and help you. And my mom actually was a big part of that happening because my mom actually went behind his back and she was the one telling a lot of his friends, you know, every Clarence helps everybody. He does all these great things for so many people. And this thing is happening to us and we're losing everything. I mean, my dad lost the radio station Sussex Records went under, the radio station went under, and he had a couple other sides. Everything just blew up at once. Um, so there was really just, it was debt upon debt upon debt upon debt. And um, so, you know, his friends showed up and they supported him and they loved him. And, um, and that taught me a lot about friendship and how to have the right people around you. And it doesn't matter if you don't have to talk to him every day. You don't have to talk to him. You know, I haven't talking, spoken to you in how long, Brad, but I know if I called you and I needed something, you'd be there for me. You know that you can call me. You don't have to speak to me for five years. I'm going to be there. And it's very important to choose your friends wisely and, and, and really who's going to be there for you, good and bad. Yeah, that, you know, that's exactly what I was thinking, Nicole. And, you know, in, in Beverly Hills, Hollywood, the entertainment community, that, that world, you know, always gets tagged with this, oh, it's superficial. You know, it's yeah. superficial out there. And, but yet real friends are everywhere. You just have to find them and, okay. and recognize them. Amen to that. They're everywhere. Yeah. everywhere. Yeah. How did your dad feel about the, the end product? He, he actually, he was very surprised. He, of course, kept teasing me. You didn't do that. Who did that? <laughs> he, um, he loved it. I think he was extremely grateful. It was, um, it was the perfect time to capture him because, like I said, I've been thinking about it for so long, and it was never really the right time. And then Reggie Hutland and I had been speaking about it for over 15 years. 
And I knew that Reggie would be the perfect person to direct because Reggie had a specific relationship with my father. And as you know, my father, he's not easy. He's not easy to get to know. He doesn't let a lot of people in. He doesn't want to be bothered with most people at most times of the day. But Reggie, I said to myself, if I'm going to get my father to really talk openly on this film, he has to have a director that knows him, that's had a relationship with him. And it worked out great because I saw my dad relax with Reggie. I saw Reggie could ask my father anything and he felt safe enough to answer the questions. And um, it just, everything came together. Reggie was available. I was, and it was perfect timing. My dad received his uh, star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And that was our first day of shooting. We took that day and we said, this is going to be day one of shooting. Yeah, it, it really was exceptional and uh, just a fun journey through history and the, the names and the people and how yeah. how he thought about deals and how he approached deals and, and the handshakes and, and yeah. you know, no contracts. And yeah. I, I mean, just, you know, um, amazing. So I want to turn to um, your support of then Senator Barack mm-hmm. Obama, who was running for president back then. And um you know, you were you were kind of breaking away from the, the your your dad, and I don't know where your mom stood, but your dad was was backing Hillary. Mm-hmm. Um, here's what President Obama said about you working on his campaign in light of the fact that that uh, Clarence was was backing Hillary. "Quote: Nicole, in coming on board very early in my campaign, in her own way, she was expressing values that had been taught to her by Clarence and Jackie. Part of that is independent thinking." and making up your own mind. I'd like to think Clarence didn't necessarily mind being proven wrong. <laughs> so how how did you get involved in the campaign and, and what was it that inspired you? I mean, it's easy to see looking back now at Barack, right. but he was a senator then. What, what got your attention and what got you? You know, interested? I met him when he was a state senator and then he was running for U.S. Senate. And then I, I knew he had some type of gift. I mean, I saw it. It was all over him. And I loved being inspired by him. And I couldn't really put my finger on it, but I kept saying to myself, God, there's something about this guy. There's something about him. So I just remember, I just kept putting it out there, just even if, you know, by myself, like, you know, you know, if there's, oh God, if there's a way I could work for him or I'll help him or I'll be available to help him and raise money here and there or introduce him to people. And one thing led to another. And then you know, we got that done and he became a U.S. senator. And then um, when he decided to run for president, I thought, well, wait a minute. You just got the Senate. What? What? But he knew there was something about I heard it in his tone. He knew on the phone. It was like, it's it's the right time. And I thought, OK, well, if you think so, I'm I'm I'm, I'm in. And because I knew it, it, I wasn't so focused on the end result and I usually am. With him, with President, with with Obama, it was more. I want to go on this journey with this man and his campaign. I don't know what's going to happen, but this is going to be a journey where I'm going to learn and I'm going to experience things that I have never seen before. And I knew I wanted to be a part of it, regardless of the outcome. And then, you know, as I said in the movie, I asked my dad. I said, "Look, is it going to be weird with you and the Clintons? Is it? I don't want to offend anybody. I'm, you know, just because I'm for somebody." doesn't mean I'm against somebody else. I've never been like that. I just try to be four things. And he just 
didn't miss a beat. He said, you are a grown woman. You can make your own decisions, Nicole. And he knew my intention and he knew my heart. And I said, really? Are you sure? He said, get out of here. Go, go, go do your thing. Because he was laughing, going, you'll be done with this in two weeks. He's not going to anywhere. <laughs> and right. I said, daddy, I think he's, he goes, he's not even going to win the nomination. So go to, you know, he was looking at me like, oh, that's so cute. You go have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then, to be honest with you, when I saw Michelle Obama at one of the first events, in LA and she came on the stage. I had not met her before and I had not seen her before. And I'm telling you, Brad, she walked on stage and something in my heart opened up and I said, this is it, I'm 100% in. Because I knew with her, when I when she, even she didn't even say a word, she walked out on stage and her presence and her grace, and I could tell that she was gonna be super intelligent and purposeful. And and she sealed the deal for me. Actually, it was Michelle. She sealed the deal. I said I definitely want to go on this journey with both of them, and and then I never looked back. And it was I was exhausted every day. I was you know it was challenge after challenge after challenge, and also eye opening and 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 phenomenal. I mean, I wouldn't trade it for the world. You kind of ruined me here because my next question was, is, is I know you and Michelle are, are tight and I was going to ask you if she is as cool as she seems, which you can also answer again if you like. But how exhilarating. I mean, you're talking about being part of a ride for the first black president in this country. And you were there kind of, you know, at the, at the ground floor and but the ascension to the presidency. I mean, yeah. How, how did that feel to you? Did you were you like pinching yourself and saying this is really happening? Yeah, and it was it was really you know we all had this joke of that you know the plane took off we were flying this plane but building the plane at the same time that it was in the air we had no idea what we were doing. By the way, I mean I look back at some of the first events that I had for him and where I had these events and the clubs. I'm like oh my god. But the great thing was I remember a time where you know it was. Everyone would say to me, what's his name? How much do you, it was, it was almost like everyone didn't really believe it. And then it something just kept taking off and, and I was working with great people and, you know, I, Charlie Rifkin and I were the Southern California co-chairs and finance chairs. And, you know, it's funny, Brad, how God throws things at you because yes, I know numbers because of my father, but I hate spreadsheets. I hate accounting. I hate all that. I'm not great at it. But, and I told the campaign up front ago, I don't do spreadsheets. I'm not going to be conventional about this, but I can definitely, I can definitely fundraise for you. And, and it, it almost felt like uh, the campaign really felt like to me, how oh, I know how to do this. Cause I watched my parents do this all my life. I watched them have fundraisers in our house all the time. And my mom used to have me at the check-in counter and, you know, making name tags and all the things that I didn't like doing as a young girl, it all added up to that moment of, Oh, I know how to, I know how to do this. I know how to run an event. I know what's supposed to happen. Um, and like you were saying earlier, just, you know, as a restaurateur, you watch people, you start studying human nature and what, what people's needs are. 
So we're winding down here, Nicole. We touched on this, but I just want to kind of get a, a broader perspective from you, not so specific to, you know, anything in particular. But, you know, as we're coming out of hopefully the the, the pandemic, we're, we're hopefully, you know, going to see this behind us. We had a, a really turbulent last few years, the election and all that led up to it and, and everything else. And it's and I think a lot of folks are feeling challenged, of course, and there's a lot of reason for pessimism. But I'm curious from you and your purview, what what are you feeling these days? Are you optimistic about where we are and, and where we're headed? Do you do you feel things are, you know, that we have the potential to really kind of come together and, and turn things around? I do. I, I'm always an optimist. You know, I'm 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 an optimist through and through. But it, I won't lie. I, I was very sad the past two years because we saw the worst of human beings and human nature. And I think it's time to, you know, it really is a time of reflection on our hearts. I think everything comes from the heart. I, I respect that everyone is about mental health and all this, and I'm not denying that. But I think if you don't have the right heart, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You could have such a sound mind. You could have the most sound mind on the planet. But if your heart's not right, you're not going to do right. You're just not. So I think it was a test, at least for me, to make sure every day that my heart is right. That, that, that I'm, I'm, I'm really focused on keeping my heart right and trying to live as much by the golden rule as possible. Because really, at the end of the day, it comes back to those simple things where you look at yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, the golden rule. But you think about it, and it's like if we, if we all really live by it, and not all of us do, we all fall from grace. But you wouldn't be hurting people because you wouldn't want that to happen to you. So, you know, the treating people badly and judging people and hurting people and murdering people and just all of that mess, it was, it, it was so heavy. But I still try to be, you know, that's why I try to look for the good news and I try to look for the heroes and all of those terrible things. And there's always a hero somewhere and the people doing the right thing on the street and helping people and People, I just try to look for people who are doing the right thing. That's my goal now, you know, anything is who's doing the right thing. And, and even during this pandemic, you look at all these social workers and all these frontline workers and all these people that no one really paid attention to before. And without them, we'd all be out. This We, we couldn't have gotten around this pandemic without them, you know. And so I, I try to look to people like that, that no one really gives them the credit that they deserve. But... Um, they give me optimism. Well, I like that. And we will leave it on that note, the uh, the optimism from Nicole Avon. Nicole, thank you so much. Thank it's you. really been great to see you and to talk to you. I miss you. And uh, I hope to see you in person real soon. But thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. Great to see you. Thank you for having me. Here I am with uh, my dear friend, Ambassador Shabazz, and our segment that we call How We Move. What's happening? How are you, my dear brother? I am fantastic. Nicole Avant, talk to me. <laughs> okay, okay. There's been an anointing. We take certain things for granted, but, you know, another child born uh, bestowed with the true blessings of continuum. Um, listening to her, um, she's really a union of all things Avant. And that means not just the parent that is the famous or the recorded one, but also her mother and, you know, the wisdoms and charisma of that 
amazing mother, Jackie Avant, whom some of us have the blessings, you know, of knowing the distinct insights um, and discernment of her father applied, you know, um, was just really wonderful to hear, you know, her dedication, how she begins a morning, you know, um, I know you miss Los Angeles. And I would imagine that having the podcast allows you to be a little closer to folks, but listening to her even talk about the union, the from between the two of you and if the family that exists even from a distance. And, you know, I know that if you're needed, it reciprocates. And if she's needed, it does the same. All of those things were really wonderful. But I know that she's born of that kind of commitment and dedication. Um, she's a witness to it in motion, um, realized by her parents um, from before birth. It's just a blessing that others of us out here have also been the beneficiary of her parents' contributions. And while, as I stated earlier, we know Clarence Avant, but I have to say collectively, Clarence and Jackie Avant. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, you, you hit it on the head. She is certainly the um, the, the mix of both both uh, Jackie's elegance and demeanor yeah. and, you know, you don't, you don't mess with Jackie either, but, uh, and then she has Clarence's shrewdness and savvy and um, the combination of those two things, you know, having, yeah, I feel like I've watched her grow up, you know, yeah. I, when I That's moved to I LA, felt. I don't know how old she was at the time, but uh, you know, it was a number of years ago and just to watch her mature through the years. And um, when she started to work on Barack's campaign, it was all of a sudden, I just had to look at this young lady differently. And, and the young lady that I had known is, you know, just this, this vibrant young, always, always just poised as I had described, but all of a sudden she was this grown woman of influence. Yeah. And uh, I just, uh, and ever since then, it's just been an incredible run for her. Influence, yes, but belief systems, right? You know, so there's access to her influence. There's avenue or gateway from her influence, but on her own, clearly has manifest that litmus that the, you know um, that is really key. What resonated for me is when she quoted her mother about you know seeing the victory. And so when we think about Barack Obama, it wasn't just a fashion. Her father and family, and even her, they had been dedicated to the opponent in terms of history and relationship. But this dedication to Obama in that campaign was really based on the right to conviction and seeing the victory as her mom had so eloquently made sure was present in her life since childhood, knowing what it looks like, and then feeling entitled to follow it, support it, back it, act on it. Um, even if your family is leaning in one way, particularly. And that family being the Avons, who, you know, it, it would it would take quite a bit for Nicole to, uh, you know, to kind of go her own path at that point. And uh, I like what Barack said, uh, that he didn't think that Clarence would mind being wrong in that case. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, her parents were strict, but they weren't scary. You know, mm -hmm. I think the blessing, you know, we always interpret who people are from the outside because her father is known for being kind of matter of fact, but not scary. Her mother is insistent, like a lot of mothers are, who make sure that they're, that everyone is, um, you know, following suit. But they really intended to invest in their children authentically um, that which would enable them to chart their own course. Because if you weren't their child and you were in their presence, you knew that, you got that, you gleaned that, certainly for their 
two beings, the two bright beings, whom after this interview, I really wanted to know more and more about who she is now and the emergence of Nicole Avant through her parents on behalf of her parents, but most certainly as the woman that is so present right now. I'm excited by the decades to follow, knowing that all of those gifts that her parents set the course on is going to be present. So what um what do you have your eyes on? What do you what do you Well, you know, I was I, I was listening to her about the trips that she yearns, you know, was in Italy. Uh she she enjoyed and planned on going back to but had never been to South Africa. Now, who am I to suggest any place to um Nicole Avon? I know she has a list of colleagues and friends that can direct her, but you know, I concurred when I was listening and I wanted to be able to relay to your general audience that, you know, when I reflect on my visits to South Africa a couple of times, they were everlastingly impressionable. You know, a few short years, though, after the uh, emancipation from apartheid, which made it a mixed bag because as you land or fly over, the hillside is enchanting, you know, but you almost feel like you can't use the words enchanting knowing the bloodshed that took place on that soil uh, for so many uh, decades impacting the well-being of, of lives. But I did get to go with the delegation. And one of the things that um, last week we just started identifying South African owned spas and hotels um, there, of which there are many, you know, indigenous South Africans creating businesses, being joining the marketplace, allowed to. Now, we think that that's, you know, any aspirational dream, but there it's new. You had a lot of internationals going, you had a lot of Black Americans putting down, but now we're talking about indigenous South Africans creating franchise spas. There's one in particular called Amani Spas. It's like a beauty, health, and wellness spa, day spa. And they have them in about five or six different cities there. And I hear that it's really enchanting, wonderful. And another one, if I can uh, break it down phonetically, is Mangwanani, um, is also a smaller spa, day spa, also um, working on franchises. So what I love is that it's these this in, in idea of getting involved in the industries is not just a one-off. They're learning and understanding the value of enterprise, owning them, creating legacies, and um, franchises. Love it. What's the word? Johannesburg. I'm, <laughs> I'm with you on that. Yeah. Have you been to South Africa? I have not, but it's, okay. you know, on, it, the list. It's on my list. It's it's a must. I have to say back in the um, 80s, there were people that went and to go. If you were a person of color, you had to be classified as an honorary white person or second class citizen. So many of us didn't choose to go then until we could go with our own passports or visas as ourselves and not have to um, have the dishonor to our existence uh, by not being able to be representative of our respective countries without having the classification classification of honorary citizen, honorary white or second class citizen. Can you imagine? But worth the trip. It's gigantically 
long, if I could say that. Get ready. There's two continents and a full body of water that you have to pass. But when you realize how large the continent is, when you're coming from the United States, you realize the bounty of what is African. Well, I look forward to that and uh, some of the other places that we've mentioned. So thank you very much. Uh, Ambassador Shabazz, how we move. We just went to South Africa and back. Thank you for that journey. And we have to do it in person. That's right. I'll see you soon. Thank you. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson. Produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.